0: Gen C is the generation of the new internet. In Gen C, the C stands for crypto, but it also stands for creators, the connected consumer, and collectibles, both digital and physical with on chain provenance. It stands for culture and characters, the ones we play in games and the companion ones that AI is building alongside us. It stands for community and digital citizenship, and the new set of transparent and trustless tools being built to govern them. These are the people who were raised on a different philosophy on how they look at money, how they look at identity, how they look at privacy, and how they look at the hybrid digital and physical spaces being built all around us. And finally, how they reimagine their relationships with the communities and companies they interact with. We focus on how brands, large and small, are building for these audiences. Welcome to Gen C. Avery, we are back. Episode 42 of Gen C, Where Does the Time Go? I'm coming to you from Brooklyn, New York City. Where are you?
1: I'm at home in Miami.
0: Look at us, both home. This is rare.
1: Very rare. This is actually the second most popular week to take off in corporate America. The first most popular is the week between Christmas and New Year's. The second is apparently the last week in August, right leading up to Labor Day. So it's actually a nice kind of quiet week to get some work done.
0: This is my favorite week in New York because there is nobody here.
1: Yeah, you've got the place to yourself.
0: You can get reservations, you can get parking spaces, anything you want in New York you can get on this specific week. Well, there's been some interesting stuff happening in the world of General Web 3. The first one, which may be the weirdest blockchain story that I've read in a really long time, is the idea that, you know, the people who make Parmigiano-Reggiano cheese, which is sought after around the world, They are adding edible microchips to the cheeses so you can verify that those cheeses are authentic and they are validating them as authentic on the blockchain. So this actually, for me, was a really interesting story because this is kind of the practical use case that we had said a long time ago. This is actually a great use of blockchain. It's a public system. You can verify it. The edible microchip part, a little bit weird because I think about you know, you're at the Italian restaurant and someone's grading that cheese over you and like, how much microchip am I just getting? Right. <laughs> but I did think it was sort of a fun use of the blockchain. And I guess one of my questions for you is, do you think we will see some of these kind of more boring uses, but very practical uses of blockchain coming more to supply chain dynamics, to inventories around the world?
1: Yes, I do. Especially in highly sought after goods, rare goods, where authentication is a real problem. So that is an interesting use case. I would be curious the durability of said chips. How exactly does that work? So I need to read further into that. But I think blockchain verification is probably the most clear use case to me of blockchain outside of crypto. Like Bitcoin, I would say, is like the killer use case for blockchain right now. There are others and verification is one of them. I don't know about Parmesan cheese verification being a large use case. (laughs) It is rather niche.
0: 100,000 wheels of cheese so far have been tacked.
1: That is an impressive number. It really is. So let's closely follow that. Let's get in touch with these (laughs) cheese folks. Maybe we can ask our dear friend, Mags Calla, who spent a lot of time in that region this summer brushing up on her Italian.
0: That's true. So I keep wondering about the folks who are worried that Bill Gates is tracking them, what it means to eat a microchip.
1: I also love that you think that that is a case of practical innovation. (laughs)
0: it's totally a case of practical.
1: Humanity's biggest problems, Parmesan verification.
0: I don't want to eat a fake Parmesan. I don't know about you. I don't want
1: to overpay for my Parmesan.
0: (laughs) All right. So you're getting the faux Parmesan and I will get the real one and we'll see in the end who's happy. We're probably both happy. Let's be honest. We'll both be happy.
1: Parmesan's delicious.
0: Exactly. All right. Second story of the week that I thought was really fascinating, which really leans into kind of Web3 and the idea of the creator economy, is the fact that OnlyFans recorded their latest fiscal year $5.6 billion spent on OnlyFans, up 16% year over year. And the owner of OnlyFans paid himself almost $400 million in a bonus. This to me is one, just honestly, an unbelievable bullish case for the creator economy, but it does make me wonder kind of the long-term opportunities that are seen in the OnlyFans universe. Like, what are your thoughts on the creator economy through this lens, though, of owning your own content, being involved in, you know, what is seen to be on the edges of content strategy, but the fact that it's such a lucrative business?
1: OnlyFans works. It is a business that works. And that $350 million bonus shows that. The CEO of OnlyFans, who's an Indian woman named Ami Ghan, someone that I've admired, sort of her moves in her career, she actually just stepped down as a CEO last month in July of 2023. And, you know, they've experienced tremendous amount of growth pre-COVID, during COVID, of course, and even now. And I think it's a super bullish case for the creator economy. It's also a super bullish case for platforms who enable that for creators. I think, the interesting friction that we see is creators want to own their audiences, but they don't want to own the infrastructure that goes alongside that and, you know, the maintenance and the updates and the feature requests and all of that. So, I mean, creators go where audiences are and where the money is ultimately. And, you know, right now that's happening on OnlyFans. We also are seeing a lot of cross-pollination stars from OnlyFans coming over to other platforms and kind of cross-pollinating their fandom there. But, uh, that is not a small bonus. Seems like he is doing just fine. And I hope Ami um, got some of that too.
0: Absolutely. What is your thoughts though on the concept of these creator platforms? The thing about OnlyFans that we know is that they don't really de-platform people in the same ways that you might get deplatformed on Instagram if you happen to show a nipple or a bare butt. Yet. Yet, but they also tried to create some guidelines and they face a giant backlash from some folks. So I could understand that if there is some regulatory... You know, judgment that came down that said that you're not allowed to have on a public internet service X, Y, and Z, then there may be a difference. But it's not like there's a lot of OnlyFans creators that are not in kind of the sex work industry, as opposed to like Patreon, where Patreon has some of that, but they also have a lot of folks who are really just pure creators. And I just wonder if, you know, obviously it shows us a lot about our society, what content they are willing to pay for. And porn sort of has always led the way in most e-com.
1: In digital innovation forever.
0: Right, exactly. But I do wonder about the opportunities that do arise for kind of the non-adult set to utilize more platforms of these because it is an opportunity to create a direct relationship.
1: I have to admit, I've actually never used OnlyFans as a consumer. I've only read about this. This is only an outsider's looking in perspective. I think it's a very heavily male audience. Um, What I do think is interesting, though, is they're clearly trying to broaden out the creators that are on their platform from their executive team. They message things like, you know, we only succeed when creators succeed. It's their mission to make OnlyFans a platform of choice for a diverse range of creators and fans. So I think they're trying to broaden that out. I think they are trying to break away from that sort of just sex workers type of content. And I also see other platforms leaning into some of the features that made OnlyFans really popular. So it's something that we should continue to keep a close eye on. Maybe we should have one of them come on here. Obviously, listeners, we know that OnlyFans is a little bit controversial, but it is inarguable that this is a place that has a tremendous amount of creator and consumer attention.
0: Absolutely. And surprise, Avery, I also did not have an OnlyFans account, either as a subscriber or as a content creator. So I too don't really understand the interest here. And for me, it's also like the fear of giving people my credit card. I don't know if you remember back in the day when all of those like adult sites were getting hacked and all their data was being leaked out to the world, but it just always seemed like a very scary place to be.
1: That isn't even why. I'm just like have no reason to like go on OnlyFans. Like I don't even know what I would look at there. But I mean maybe I should just to like see what it's like. Um
0: we can find a creator for you, if it'll, I'm it'll sure there's okay. a creator that I would be interested <laughs> in or OnlyFans. Right.
1: I just personally haven't spent any time as a user there and I always try to not talk too much about apps that I haven't personally used, but it is unquestionably sweeping the entertainment industry. You know, 16% year-over-year growth is not nothing, especially in a large base. And I think they also continue to see success outside of just like their core US markets.
0: Absolutely. All right, Avery, the final story before we get to our amazing guest, Julie Allen from Howard Hughes Corporation. Final story is one of the biggest brands in the world, Walmart, is sort of dipping their toes in an interesting way into Web3. They've partnered with, the people of Crypto Lab. I know you and I both know Simone, who runs that. And they are doing, in essence, a tribute to the 50th anniversary of hip hop, a topic very near and dear to my heart, where they are bringing kind of this hip hop experience into Spatial. I know Spatial is a platform you know something about as well. And, you know, I thought this was like a nice kind of way to like lever up a softball, if you will, to a large corporation for being part of culture. They have a, Big initiative around Black communities and recognizing more opportunities within that. It hasn't launched yet, but it was a nice way for them to sort of get involved in kind of an adjacency in Web3. And, you know, I just didn't know if you had any thoughts about Walmart and their opportunities to come into Web3 and your feelings about your favorite rapper of all time.
1: Yeah, well, everybody and their mother is doing a Hip Hop 50 campaign, which we love. Fiena is definitely doing some of those as well. I think this is a nice like plug-and-play solution. I think Simone and the people of Crypto Labs team, you know, they've got a really strong mission in creating a more equitable future for particularly black and brown communities, welcoming them into the Web3 era. And that's always something that I found really impressive. And it's something that brands actually have a direct commitment to. Samuel will remember this, but particularly in the Black Lives Matter aftermath, a lot of brands made serious commitments to spend on black owned media and black owned partnerships and From research that I've read, many of them have struggled to deliver upon those commitments. And I think this is a great way, at the very minimum, to engage there. And it's always easy for brands to hop into one of those sort of plug-and-play situations. I think doing something yourself in a virtual world, it's just a big lift, right? Like if you build it, they won't come. So you know, plugging into something that Simone's team has built, I think, is smart. I know Walmart has had a couple of explorations in the world of Roblox. I believe they did their first sort of pilot activation. I just saw they're launching something for back to school with Super Campus. So clearly something that, you know, they're interested in exploring. This is actually a Roblox experience where you can play fun games. And, you know, it seems very targeted towards that sort of back to school audience. I just saw that come out this week, but another sort of dabble that they're doing in this space.
0: All right, Avery, you did not answer who your favorite rapper is. Save that for next week. I'm going to ask you again.
1: Best Rapper Alive.
0: (laughs) Best Rapper Alive is blank because we have to get to Julie. So after the break, we will hear from Julie Allen, from Howard Hughes Corporation, talk real estate, talk Web3, talk the metaverse, talk some MoonPay activities. It's going to be fun. We'll see you soon. Welcome back everyone. We are here with Julie Allen. Julie is the SVP Digital and Creative from Howard Hughes Corporation. She has had an amazing career as well prior to Howard Hughes which we're going to get into. So, first off, Julie, welcome.
2: Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I feel very honored to be invited onto the pod.
0: We're very excited to have you. So, for our audience, who are you? What is the Howard Hughes Corporation for people who might not know? And then what's your personal crypto journey been before we talk about what you guys are doing at Howard Hughes?
2: Okay, so I will start off by talking about my journey and how I ended up at Howard Hughes, which is a mixed-use real estate developer. So we develop on a pretty massive scale across the country, primarily in master-planned communities, but we also have some more unique projects like the seaport in Manhattan where I'm based and focus a lot of my efforts. But to take it back to the beginning, I actually started off my career in media at the BBC in London, where my first job was actually recruiting audiences to come and watch tapings of TV shows. Now that was super fun when it was a Madonna music special, but when you were trying to get people to come and watch a six hour taping of a lottery game show, It was pretty tough. However, from there, I realized that I wanted, well, I thought I wanted a role in TV production. So I would spend all of my free time, all of my vacation days working for free on shows that I wanted to get a full-time gig on. But to be honest, it was a little bit of a, a thankless task and I didn't really get very far. And it was at that time I saw a job being advertised in what they called back then interactive entertainment, which we would now call digital. And I didn't know anything about how to put together websites. So I remember I bought myself a book on HTML and JavaScript, and I literally studied this book for like four weeks straight. And I ended up landing the job, which was super cool. And my 23-year-old energy was met with a lot more enthusiasm in this team, as back then digital was still the kind of like uncool sibling of TV, if you like. But what was interesting, and I think relevant to what we're going to talk about later today, is how that started to change. And soon those TV shows that I'd been kind of clambering to work on were coming to our department For input on how they could evolve digitally, how they could engage on a deeper level with their audiences through digital channels. So I thought, okay, I've kind of stumbled across something here and I'm going to stick with it. So after the BBC, I moved to MTV, where I stayed for 11 years and continued to work in the digital and creative space. And it was there that social media, it was around that time that social media really started to emerge as a really viable engagement and marketing channel. Not so much though that I remember reaching out to Biz Stone, one of the founders of Twitter, like just cold emailing him direct and asking for one of our artists to be put on the must follow list when somebody new joined Twitter. And he did it for me. And I remember this artist got 20 million followers over the course of a couple of months. So that was a huge win and You know, being early and being able to do things like that
1: in these kind of technology platforms has always been really exciting for me. Julie, can you email Elon for me, please? Yeah, same. (laughs) So that MTV job brought me to New York, where
2: I've been ever since. And six years ago is when I joined the Howard Hughes Corporation, where I'm now, as you pointed out up front, the SVP of Digital and Creative which more recently has involved leading our Web3 team. And I think in many ways there are parallels to my early days in media with Web3 being this kind of burgeoning up-and-comer and and, having so much belief in it and kind of shouting from the rooftops that not getting everybody's full attention yet, but knowing that we will get there. And that's what keeps me motivated on
1: a daily basis. Julie, that's fascinating. And before we get into what you do now, which sounds really exciting and impressive, I'm curious because you spent so many years in the media business. What do you think of the state of media these days? Will we all be living in metaverse worlds soon? Or will video content still dominate our feeds and attention for years to come? A little bit of both. What is the Julie Allen take on the state of media today?
2: Wow. Well, it's changed so much since I was at MTV. I remember when I first joined, there was the YouTube lawsuit with Viacom. This was at the time where everybody was insistent on having to build their own product and platform. And I think we all quickly learned that it was a much better strategy to partner with these technology platforms as opposed to try and compete with them. So that was one kind of learning early on. Obviously the shift to social media and emerging platforms that weren't even around when I was talking about social media earlier, like TikTok and the emergence of super short form video and everybody being able to be a creator. I remember one of my other kind of careers on my wish list back in the day was oh, I really want to be a, an MTV presenter. Um, and back then you would have to do a screen test, you would have to go to auditions, you would have to do the whole shebang, And the amount of people that got on screen was so small. Now, anybody can do that from their bedroom, from anywhere in the world. And that has fundamentally put the creator in control. So it's no longer about the big broadcasters being in control of that content. It's about the individual creators, I think. And in regards to the metaverse and other emerging platforms that we're going to see evolve over the next few years, it's just going to be, I believe, more of that, especially when you're talking about blockchain-based metaverses and platforms that are on-chain. This idea of true ownership is going to be massive for the industry. And, you know, if I were a media company now, I'd be thinking heavily about how that is going to affect my business.
0: Julie, who was your favorite MTV VJ? Downtown Julie Allen, (laughs) Kennedy, who was it?
2: Well, I grew up in the UK, so you're probably not going to know the VJs that I grew up on, but there was a show called MTV Select that was on every day, like after school at four o'clock, and you would call up, and you could request a music video. I sound so old now. I realise, <laughs> but I figured out the strategy. If you called 15 minutes before the show started, you were guaranteed to get on air. So it was hosted by this female presenter called Donna Air, and I became obsessed with the show and getting on it every week and had like have the live conversation on air, and it was fun until I realised that I was actually being a little bit lame and had to stop that. <laughs>
0: All right, so let's get into it, Julie. Why is a big real estate company interested in getting involved in Web3?
2: So I've been involved in crypto for quite a while. I've always tried to stay ahead of technology and new trends. And my first foray into crypto was back in 2013. And I remember at the time, I felt super late. You know, I bought that first Bitcoin hype cycle. And then I had to listen to everybody telling me how long I was for, you know, a good few years. And then when Ethereum launched and the idea of smart contracts and being able to build these decentralized applications, it really felt like a game changer. So I was constantly throughout that period trying to think about ways that the technology could be introduced into whatever business I was working in at the time, whether that be back at MTB or more recently at Howard Hughes. And I would say it was only really, I don't want to say mainstream, but somewhat mainstream in 2020, 2021, when we kind of caught that next hype cycle, that it seemed like a good opportunity to bring it up and say, hey, we should be exploring this. There are lots of benefits when used well. Let's look at what we can do. However, back then, the original idea And the most obvious idea was to look at metaverses. So how could we replicate one of our neighborhoods in this kind of enhanced and fantastical way in a sandbox or a decentraland? And I remember first pitching that and everybody was suitably intrigued by it. But they told me to spend six more months thinking about how we could really leverage this technology in a deeper way. And that was, quite honestly, the best thing that could have happened because across those six months, the industry evolved so much. You know, we saw a real shift in how people were engaging with the metaverse. The kind of bubble was kind of slowly deflating at that point. And we ultimately decided upon a different direction, which was how could we leverage this sweet spot being a real estate developer at the intersection of digital and physical and use the technology to layer on top of physical assets to ultimately create enhanced experiences for people that are visiting our destinations. Of course, we have a lot of assets and we wanted to hone in and start with a relatively small scale experiment. And I know seaport in lower Manhattan may not seem that small, but compared to, you know, a 23,000 acre development in Texas, it felt somewhat more manageable. We also own and operate a lot of the businesses down there. So it meant that if we were to integrate technology, it would just make that process easier. So, you know, that kind of got the ball rolling and From deciding we wanted to focus on Seaport and create this digitally connected community, fundamentally built on Web3 principles, we realized that even though we were a passionate team of people, we didn't really have any credibility in the space. So that's why we decided to go first and foremost with our community building efforts. So... The partnerships that you referenced, Sam, with Super Air and Bright Moments, you know, we wanted to bring those communities down to seaport, share our physical spaces, host events, put on educational content and let people know that we were serious about this and open it up to others also wanting to engage. In fact, one thing that happened prior to that, which I neglected to mention, is when we hosted Apefest on the pier rooftop back in June 2022, before any of the right moments or super rares were in, there was a vacant space on the ground floor of Pier 17. And I honed in on it and I said to management, I would like to take that space and open an NFT gallery. I said, It's better than it laying empty. Let's do it. And they were very supportive. And we turned that space, a blank canvas, into this NFT gallery in eight days. Got a good friend of mine, Mike Lipman, who I think you know, Sam, to curate that first show. And it was very focused around community collections. So people who had great artworks in their collections and wanted to share them in a physical space, this was a canvas for them to do it. And so we continued to run it up until the point super Rare took it over
1: and I'm curious, of all the partnerships and all of the community building that you've done at the Seaport, there have been so many incredible examples. Obviously, the giant eight balloon cannot be soon forgotten. <laughs> Are there any that stand out to you as being particularly meaningful or that you're particularly proud of as the leader of that initiative? So
2: the partnership with Bright Moments has been really interesting and in that it really leans into the intersection of physical and digital. One of the first shows they put on was with an artist called Emily Edelman, and she did a live mint of her generative artwork at our opening night event. So prior to that, people had minted a color palette online using their wallet, obviously, and they brought that color palette down to the physical show. And with that, they were able to live mint with Emily on a huge screen, The artwork that was made up of that color palette and it was a really cool experience because you were doing it there and then and you had to be physically present and you got to talk to the artist and learn about her process and suddenly you know an nft wasn't just something that appeared on a screen on your laptop it was something that felt very tangible and had a ton of value associated with it in my opinion Because where else do you get to experience something like that in the traditional art world? So that was great. And they were and continue to be great partners to us. They put on a ton of events. They put on regular programming with great artists. So definitely something that we'd look to kind of carry forward.
0: Yeah, shout out to Seth, who was on the pod a couple of months ago from Bright Moments. Awesome. Very excited. I know they have Buenos Aires coming up. So uh, a lot of great stuff happening with Bright Moments. Julie, you recently partnered with Moonpay. Yes. I think we saw each other last week down at the launch event for that with Keith Grossman and a ton of other people. I know it's like a scavenger hunt that's really focused on getting people around the environment. Maybe you can tell us a little bit about that partnership and how much of it is about building community, how much is about supporting retail. What was the genesis of this coming together?
2: yeah so I think Moonpay and Seaport are both aligned in their vision of wanting to use a technology to provide great experiences for consumers, right? So this was the result of a, a kind of brainstorm between Keith and the team and our team in terms of what could we do that felt a little bit more integrated into the built environment. It wasn't just a kind of sticker QR code in random places we wanted it to feel interesting and quirky and cool. So we fabricated these purple pearls that are about the size of a basketball and placed them around the seaport in areas that are easy to find and some much harder to find. And the idea is that you take people on a journey around the neighborhood. Some places, you know, they may not have Even visited before. We've got one pearl hanging in Cannon's Walk, which is a kind of hidden back alley on the historic cobblestones. So, exposing people to new areas of the neighborhood that they may not have seen before, and also us being able to see what journey they have been on. So, you know, many guests at Seaport might come to a specific restaurant or come to a concert on the rooftop and kind of go home from there. But by encouraging them to participate in the scavenger hunt, we're telling them and showing them that there's much more to the seaport that can be experienced. If you add to that, every time you scan a purple pearl, you receive an NFT artwork. And we wanted to make this artwork something that was really fun and, in my opinion, highly collectible. So we chose kind of iconic New York objects. We had an artist called Joanna Croft, do the artwork for us and they're kind of really fun and irreverent you've got like the new york pigeon which is called the city dove you've got an anchor you've got a slice of pizza and the idea is that people want to collect this full set and obviously unlike other scavenger hunts that aren't on chain you can then trade those nfts on the open market if you so wish additionally if you scan all 10 and do the full set you're entered into a prize draw to win VIP seaport experiences. So that might be a VIP concert experience or a dining experience at Building. Are all the pieces
1: of art purple?
2: They are. They are. We did that as a nod to Moon pay.
1: Yes, I get that. So the purple pearls, the purple art, it's a purple seaport experience, which is pretty cool. Yeah, yeah, I would say so. I love it. I mean, I love purple. Purple's like a trending color, I think. This was the summer of lavender. (laughs) Was it really? I didn't know that. It was. I literally have multiple new items that are lavender.
0: I just learned it's the summer of lavender.
1: Julie, as someone who's definitely spent some time building and designing IRL experiences, I still have yet to see a digital experience that really compares to being in person the magic of being at the seaport. You just talked about the cobblestones, the purple pearls, like the dinner there, all of that great stuff. And your company is literally in the business of creating these spaces in the real world. What is it about being together that is so dramatically different in real life versus virtually? And do you see that we might be the last generation that thinks that? That's a good question. Even though Sam's a lot older than me. (laughs)
0: you <laughs> are not the same generation.
1: <laughs> I'm kidding.
2: Well, I'm probably more Sam's generation, so I don't know how old he would have are, But um, you know, we grew up on in-person interactions. You know, when I was a teenager, I was still, and this is really showing my age now. I would have to go to a pay phone to call my friend or like a crush or who I wanted to like get on the phone. So when I think about how far we've come in that respect. You know, it always blows my mind that the iPhone only came out in 2007. Like, how is this thing that is so integral to our everyday lives only been around for that short period of time?
0: Julie, someone was paging you at some point in like the late 90s, <laughs> or you had a BlackBerry.
1: I did have a BlackBerry, but not a pager. But our previous guest was actually telling us the story last week about him remembering getting his first phone at his house in India and how he had to wait for seven years. Wow.
0: To get a landline. Yeah. yeah.
1: Like recently. So it is crazy how fast the world has evolved and communication has evolved. Absolutely. And you know, you, you had the old Nokia phones
2: where you had your one game, which was Snake that everyone got addicted to. Love snake. And, you know, you pick up your iPhone now and it's just a world of possibilities in the palm of your hand. And, you know, I always like to say that technology and innovation is compounding. So if we've come this far in this short period of time, it's only going to ramp up to a point that we're not even going to be able to probably comprehend right now. But to answer your question, I think physical interaction will always be important However, it depends on how far the technology evolves that facilitates almost real life interactions that feels like I'm there in the room with you, that, you know, we've come a long way with Zoom and video calls and all of that compared to, you know, an old school phone call. But when you've got, you know, the new Vision Pro and other tech that's not here yet, I think we'll see a real shift in how people engage with one another. We can even go back to the story of, you know, how social media blew up so quickly. Who'd have thought that people would be so obsessed with watching 15-second videos of people dancing with their kitchen mop, doing a dance, you know? So with each generation comes change, and I think it's just a, a natural evolution. I hope, though for the sake of humanity, that there remains some physical component to it. And it's not just all kind of in the metaverse or kind of virtual reality.
0: But Julie, let's pull on that a little bit, because you are part of a real estate company. And I remember trying to think, I think it was last New Year's Eve, I wrote a piece where I spent New Year's Eve in Decentraland with another large real estate company that owned Times Square or one Times Square. And they had been talking about they were foreseeing a future where retail leases came with a metaverse companion in their building and residential opportunities came with a space that you could hang out with in virtual worlds. And even the idea that on your business card at some point, you're going to have your home address and you're going to have your virtual address. And I've spent a lot of time in virtual spaces. And other than getting obsessed with a game here or there, for the most part, I still see being with humans in real places is the way I want to spend most of my time. But there's billions of dollars invested in the world of digital twins and game worlds and all of this other stuff. So as a real estate company, do you have to think of digital first space as a business problem that you have to solve?
2: You know, I think you can look at a digital twin as something quite separate from a metaverse. So with a digital twin... If you're looking at it from a, I want to lease this building perspective, right now you pay lots of money to have high quality renders of buildings done that aren't built yet and you pay for those individually. I actually had a really incredible demo from a company last week who's in the renders business but have seen this opportunity with Digital Twins and integrating their existing business into it. And it's actually a subscription model. And I'll have to get the link and send it to you because it's so impressive. They've essentially mapped Manhattan in its entirety, but to super high resolution. It's like Google Earth, but much, much better. And you can kind of zoom in and change the weather and it's really mind-blowing. But their pitch is that rather than pay for renders on an individual basis, we'll put this building on the landscape for you and we'll render every floor and people can explore it as part of this, you know, virtual world.
0: And then they'll own the data underlying that because they created it exactly. versus the building itself, right?
1: I like that using something that you already need to do versus sort of creating this separate silo. And I love that that's where your strategy is sort of coming from. That makes so much sense, just like making a digital version of an iconic space. Like, sometimes I just wonder, like, why, what's in it for the consumer? Is it about, you know, fostering this desire to visit that space, or is it really just a publicity stunt for the real estate developer themselves? But I love what you were talking about, Julie, because it has just such a practical maximization opportunity.
2: Yeah, absolutely. And I think, you know, even when we're showing apartments or condos, like new towers that we've built in Hawaii. It's, you know, digital tours, it's renders, you know, it's good and it's at a certain level. But when I think about how much further the technology is going to come to the point where you can step into that condo and experience it and, you know, touch and smell and really kind of experience it for all the senses, that's going to be really game-changing. So when we talk of the metaverse, I always think of the kind of social application of it and being able to, you know, converse with people and be part of a community and a crew. I think they're both important, but sometimes you don't, for certain purposes, need that if you're just selling something straight up, like a building.
0: I love that. I feel, though, I want to play a devil's advocate a little bit, which is... And again, we're all in the business of also gathering people together in physical space. So I think we're all sort of very bullish on humanity doing that. Seeing an apartment is great, getting to be able to feel what it looks like. But, you know, your render or your 3D space is not going to show you what the traffic noise is like. It's not going to show you what happens when the next door neighbor has the TV on too loud. It doesn't sort of let you see what that neighborhood might be like at night. So there are things that I think, again, I keep. Thinking, and this is, I think, part of the tension is there's a lot of novelty in all of this, but there's a very big difference between novelty and consistent behaviors. And I recognize the three of us, for example, live lives where we get to travel to really interesting places. We're in cities that have amazing groups of people and restaurants and sites and things like that. There are people who live in places where they need a metaverse because they want to find people like themselves and they don't have them in their village, in their town, in their community. So there, the social aspect becomes first, right? I want to find people who are LGBTQ, but I happen to be in a really religious community, right? I can go on the metaverse. I can find like-minded people. I can dress however I want and be whoever I want to be in that space. And that plays a really valuable role. But I still think the function there is you're filling the need I don't get at home. Where Howard Hughes could be building locations or where Avery or I decide to throw a conference, those are going to be in places where we know people are going to come. It already has an infrastructure that's going to support this. Like I want very badly to understand the use case for the casual metaverse, if you will. But I still think as people continually want to find ways to give someone a hug, and that's just harder to do. And I still haven't found anything that feels fun outside of the game and outside of the, I can't find my people, so where are my people experiences?
2: Yeah, yeah. But if you're a you know, an eight-year-old obsessed with Roblox and that's what you've come up on.
0: She's calling me old again, Avery.
2: <laughs> <laughs> that's that's your normal. And so it's going to be interesting to see how that generation does want to interact in the real world. I hope that it's at the same level that we do, but, you know, we've seen huge shifts across generations over the past, like, look at the last 100 years. Absolutely. it's. Incredible. So I think only time will tell. And along with that, the evolution of the technology might blow our minds beyond what we can even imagine right now. And might be like,
1: okay, so this is what it was all about. Speaking of blowing your mind, we would be remiss if we don't ask you what you are thinking about AI, Julie. Are we going to see NPC-based concierge, apartment assistants? All of that is Smart House coming to life. I'd love to hear your perspective on that as a leader in the real estate space.
2: Yeah, so Avery, it reminds me of a conversation we were having last week about, you know, what does Web3 cover now? And how, you know, we're pretty much aligned on how we're seeing it as an umbrella term for essentially the new internet and all the emerging technology that kind of falls within that, including AI. So, you know, while certainly our initial ventures in the world of Web3 were heavily focused on blockchain, we've certainly, you know, jumped on the AI bandwagon, so to speak as well, because it's just too huge not to. So we've identified many opportunities around the company. There's a couple of projects we're actively working on now that unfortunately I can't say too much about because they're kind of on the enterprise side of things that the opportunities for efficiencies across the board just you know when it comes to accounting and contracts and just sourcing information you know there's such huge amounts of information within organizations and often finding the right piece of information can be quite cumbersome. So how can we build, you know, models that allow us to access that information at a flash as opposed to, you know, hours spent searching? So I think, yeah, without a doubt, AI is here. I know some people are saying we need to kind of put the brakes on, which I guess I agree with to some extent, but, you know, you kind of can't stop the train once it's left the station. So I
1: think we're going to see opportunity plenty, and we're certainly actively engaged. Opportunity plenty What a perfect sort of closing sentiment. Julie, thank you so much for taking the time to join us today to share your insights, a little bit about your career and a little bit about how Howard Hughes is navigating this expansive world of Web3. It has been such a pleasure. The pleasure is all mine.
2: So thank you very much.
0: Julie, thanks so much for your time and we will see you soon. Thank you. Have a good day. Avery, I'm so glad we got to have Julie on the pod. I know both you and I have spent some time with her and her team, and they're really showing up for the Web3 community, at least here in New York City. They held a lot of events. Timepieces, I think, does their monthly event there. And they've really been just courting people as a learning opportunity. Frankly, for people to come learn about Web3 in a beautiful new space. So I'm glad she came and hearing her story was fantastic. I didn't know very much about that.
1: I think it's so interesting to hear like a real estate developer playing in this space because I mean, we've had on plenty of guests in this sort of brand, CPG and financial services and fashion. Like that makes sense. Like Howard Hughes is not necessarily like a consumer facing entity. I mean, it's very like B2B focused and ultimately B2C, but. I think it's really interesting to hear how their organization is embracing innovation. Innovation is, in fact, one of their core values, which is pretty cool. So Julie was a great guest and it was really refreshing to hear her perspective on taking such an approach to just like learn, embrace these like micro communities, even at such a massive scale as, you know, what their entity does.
0: Absolutely, I'm very interested to see where these big real estate holding companies go in the future because we know that tokenization can be amazing for loyalty. We know that the metaverse could reimagine spatial sort of living. And how we bring that to life is going to happen where large entities need to be involved.
1: And I think the practical example she gave of, like, we spend a lot of money developing these 3D renders. Let's put them somewhere. That just makes all the sense in the world to me, because that's something that they have that has a very clear utility and purpose. It's not, you know, about a stunt or something silly and speculative. It's just about something that is ultimately useful to consumers. So I like that's where she went with it. I like this lens of like practical innovation versus like futurist. So that's probably why I vibe with Julie. But she was a great guest. Our first real estate guest. Fun to hear her take and also her take on how, you know, they spent six months just kind of listening and then decided to activate, which is also impressive. And Gen C fam, if you are in the Seaport area, please go check out their activation right now. Go scan those purple pearls and collect all 10 of those assets from the scavenger hunt. If I was in New York this week, I would definitely do it.
0: I'll do it for you. Just give me your phone. Please. Avery, yeah, send it to me.
1: Send you a seed phrase.
0: All right. With that, let's wrap up. Avery, another amazing episode. So great to see you. Have an amazing week. And thanks for listening, everyone.
1: Thank you, Gen C. See y'all next week.